You're listening to a SPIN podcast. We're interested in investigating the interconnections between secrecy, power, and ignorance that shape our world today. So at last, it's uh, my turn to record a podcast, and today I'm going to be talking about some of the research I've been doing on secrecy subjects and manhunting. Last month, President Trump addressed the U.S. public and a wider global public in announcing the death of Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the senior Islamic State leader who had been the subject of an intense U.S.-led manhunt for almost a decade. Shortly after the speech, which itself had echoes of President Obama's announcement following the death of Osama bin Laden, President Trump tweeted out a picture of him bestowing the Medal of Honor on Conan, a military service dog injured in the course of the raid when Baghdadi detonated a suicide vest. The image was itself photoshopped. What I want to do in this talk is offer a reflection in connection with this very public set of announcements, Obama's speech, Trump's speech, and subsequent tweet, and how a recently published paper, Secrecy Subjects, in the European Journal of International Security, and a paper I have in progress on secrecy and manhunting can help reinterpret these events. For me, this results in two things. Expanding our understanding of the powers of secrecy as a set of practices and ideas, particularly in relation to how subjects or identities are constituted in relation to secrecy. But secondly, to explore in a bit more detail why hunting as a metaphor and set of practices for security is so compelling and has come to dominate U.S. security practices in particular of late. For those who know a bit about the literatures on targeted killing, for example, Grégoire Chamayou's work on manhunting, but I want to suggest that we can go further in thinking about the subject-making associated with manhunts in terms of their race and gendered logics, and to think about how secrecy, how relationships of dominance and resistance play out through secrecy when it comes to manhunting, and to conclude that this terminology is so problematic that we need to stop using the word manhunting altogether. In the first instance, in researching U.S. special operations in connection with the global war on terror, I've spent a lot of time not only reading their operational manuals and reports, but also reading their memoirs. And what struck me as I argue in Secrecy Subject is the extent to which they navigate with and through secrecy in a whole range of different ways, spanning their professional and personal lives. But more than that, operators make sense of themselves in relation to secrecy in a way I had not seen described or analyzed in the literature on secrecy or in critical security studies. My first point is, therefore, that we are all secrecy subjects in a way. We all constitute ourselves with and through secrecy depending on where and when. Whether we use secrecy to maintain levels of privacy about our lives or to facilitate social interactions, secrecy is all-pervasive. But what struck me as interesting about special operators is a story about how they use secrecy in four ways or layers, and the paper sets that out and draws those four ways together in what I am calling an arcanum, a design for producing and keeping secrets, and a way of complementing our attention on the design called the panopticon, um, which is a way of producing or preventing the circulation of certain secrets. And I have more on that on a paper I'm writing on the arcanum itself. These four ways include the geospatial and technical or technological means of keeping secrets, what secrecy is most commonly understood as, but it also includes two additional layers— the cultural forces that make secrecy possible, and then the more spectacular economies of the secret. I'll say a little bit more about each of these before I turn to manhunting and my current writing project. 
In the first layer, the geospatial, insider subjects are constituted in relation to their ability to cross into special spaces, whether a secure compartment or a wire fence. Insider subjects recognize themselves as being connected to a special community that is tied to physical geospatial barriers. In the second layer, the technical and technological master subjects are constituted by virtue of their ability to navigate across a terrain of secrecy using the tools and techniques of secrecy. Special operators are masters or warriors in part through the skills they acquire and the technologies they learn to use that help them evade detection and detect others, such as night vision goggles or high-altitude, high-opening parachutes or dangerous underwater operations. In the third layer, the cultural, quiet subjects are constituted by their ability not only to keep quiet about their lives to those who are not supposed to be in the know, including family, but also by their abilities to master the cultural codes and blend into supposedly any environment. If we talk about resistance subjects through the lens of queer theory or critical race theory, we can think about the concept of passing. But in the context of special operators, in relation to dominant positions, we can instead talk about stealthy subjects who use the same practices and know-how and cultural contexts in order to navigate through these spaces. In the final layer, the spectacular or economic one, alluring subjects constitute themselves as special by virtue of the celebration of their access or proximity to knowledge. Secrecy has an allure, but this extends to how individuals constitute themselves and others in relation to this allure. People, we are told, want to get close to them, to touch the magic. So there is also an important, even sexual element to play here. Secrecy is sexy in these contexts. Special operators, and indeed everyone, is to some degree reliant on these layers in order to make sense of themselves, using these practices for dominance or resistance in relation to broader structures of power, and is worth investigating. Now let's turn back to manhunting. In my more detailed exploration of the targeted killing discourse, I felt a need to have a clearer sense of this one prominent element. To hunt a person is quite a strong statement, and immediately resonates. Witch hunts, for example. There's a reason why Trump likes that term. But it is also connected to longer U.S. histories of, quote, Indian hunting in the violent colonial setting and expansion of U.S. territories, but also slave hunting. Hunting has deep resonance in U.S. culture, also, through the appropriation of hunting in the late 19th century and the remasculinization of U.S. culture at a time of mass industrialization and urbanization, as well as a rewriting of the U.S.'s founding into a nation of hunters, a myth that has been very powerful for groups such as the NRA, for example. To the power and appeal of hunting in popular culture, everything from the Hunger Games and Black Mirror's Metal Heads episode, which is fabulous, to Doctor Who, which is British to be fair, to spy thrillers of Mission Impossible and Enemy of the State, in fact, a lot of Tom Cruise movies feature a hunt, to the Jurassic Park mega-hits, these have at the core a hunt. And I would encourage listeners to look for hunts in popular culture and consider tweeting us suggestions. Manhunting is, however, also tied to three patterns that are essential to it making sense within the security discourse of the war on terror. It has its subjects, not only the ones that I've talked about, of the layers of insiders, master warriors, quiet and alluring, but we have the additional layer of predator and prey. And what would you rather be? A predator, right? Especially as the prey is often animalized and dehumanized in particular hunting discourses. Predators and prey are deeply interconnected through secrecy practices. It is the ability to search and evade through secrecy and its layers that produces predators and prey and allows these roles to switch. Manhunting, secondly, involves tools and techniques. Who comes out on top is often told through how clever they are at using the tools and techniques either to find or to evade. 
And this can be low-tech, if the story is about an underdog, or high-tech, if it's not. These techniques and technologies, like for special operators, involve the mastery of the milieu of secrecy. You need to be a master of the environment and of the senses in order to navigate through secrecy, whether you're predator or prey. But this is also where we can come back to dogs in another way, that the U.S. special operators work closely with dogs on the hunt again returns us to continuities with the past and the horrors of history of slavery hunting, for example. Finally, manhunting involves a narrative structure that is based around secrecy. The hunt has to be called, the chase ensues, there may be a reversal of the predator-prey relationship, and there is ultimately a violent encounter where one emerges victorious. All of these elements of the narrative take place in the heightened setting of the play of secrecy. Who or what will be revealed drives the narrative forward. But there is also, and for the final time we return to Trump, there is also a display of a trophy. Across hunting cultures in the U.S., there is a spectacle to mark the end of the hunt, which has the alluring properties of the secret. And that component has to be understood. From the perp walk to the display of seized goods to the televised speech, a trophy ends the hunt as a narrative. So above all, hunting, therefore, is an essential element of understanding current U.S. security practices in the war on terror. But it is also useful for deepening our understanding of the workings of secrecy in security discourses more broadly. You've been listening to a SPIN podcast. For more episodes, please check out our website, secrecyresearch.com, or find us on iTunes. <laughs>